empty and the stages are all dark We can't be asked to make sourdough and they've locked our local park We're a pair of nosy parkers with not much to do So we've called up some of our performer friends and recorded them on Zoom Curtain Twitchers We're Curtain Twitchers Hi! Hi! Welcome to the very first episode of Curtain Twitchers Hello, we are your hosts, Liv and George. Yes, those are our names. Um, How are you, Liv? I'm all right, actually, yeah. Good. I'm having a lovely time. Good. Just talking to you. Yeah, it's nice, like nice to see you without all that makeup on your face. Oh, I feel a burden has been lifted. Um, yes, eagle-eared listeners might, but probably will not, recognise our voices as yeah. belonging to uh, alter egos Bourgeois and Maurice. That's correct. We um, are not them today. We're no. not. We left them behind in another dimension um, while we record this series because they're actually not very good at talking about anything real. They're not. Um, and this podcast is sadly all about reality. It um, is. It is at its hideous best. Exactly. So, so Liv, let's talk. Let's talk about this really. Okay. Why are we doing this? Well, George, it's a good question. Um, as you know, theatres, mm-hmm. um, they're all shut at the moment. And so we, along with um, a lot of other performers, have been wondering, like, what is going on and what's going to happen to our industry? And really questioning why we actually decided to become professional show-offs in the first place. Yes. Um, so this is just a chance to chat to other performers who we love and find out what they think about things um, and generally make ourselves feel less isolated and um, despairing about the future of live entertainment. Good. Yeah. And if people are listening and they don't sort of perform for a living, yeah. will they get anything out of it, do you think? One hopes so. Okay, One hopes <laughs> fingers so. crossed, fingers <laughs> crossed. Um, so should we just quickly talk about our own career? Yeah, it's please. nice to talk about yourself, isn't yeah. it, in a podcast. Um, so um, if you don't know who we are, but you are still listening to this for reasons that only you will understand, um, we make shows that are sort of cabaret, yeah. sort of musical comedy, a little bit rough around the edges, yeah. a bit queer, um, hopefully fun. But also deeply, deeply, extremely, very much, very intelligent. Absolutely, um, yeah. And don't, you don't need to Google us to find that out. Just trust us, absolutely. That's all true. Um, and so a little bit about this. Obviously, it's all recorded in lockdown um, and we did it over Zoom. So the sound can be a bit variable at times, but so can our live shows. So <laughs> Exactly. It's just like, Sorry about that. It's just true to form. Um, shall we introduce our first... Introduce? Shall we introduce? Shall we introduce our first guest? <laughs> Let's. Okay. They are a, a multi-award winning performer, songwriter, painter, actor, activist, and one of the most inspirational and I think glamorous people we've ever met. It's Justin Vivian Bond. Woohoo! Um, Viv is probably best known for creating the iconic double act Kiki and Herb with Kenny Melman in the early 90s. We actually saw them at their reunion show in New York in 2016. We did, and I sat next to Bjork, which I think is just a bit, an important bit of information. Is, and I didn't. No. I sat at a different table. That's also important. <laughs> I remember the daggers you were giving me. Yeah. Um, uh, Viv uh, has appeared in films as well, including Short Bus and Can You Ever Forgive Me, as well as TV, art shows, fashion shows etc etc um during lockdown they've been hosting a series of online shows as their alter ego auntie glam and it's actually here in auntie glam's summer house where we find viv on zoom um looking very much the summery goddess absolutely something from a maeve binchy novel wonderful so shall we just dive right in let's curtain twitchers we're curtain twitchers how are you i'm good i guess yeah, I think I'm good. How are you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. New baby, right? Yeah. How's your baby? She's two and a half. Um, I, so she must be loving having you home all the time. She is loving it, yeah. I feel like just before um, lockdown happened, we were doing this big show in Manchester. So I was away for nearly like almost three months. Like I was coming back at the weekends, but it was like a long time. And I feel like she kind of maybe cosmic ordered this whole global pandemic just so... I could actually stay at home with her <laughs> for some time. Yeah, I thought it was mine because I was finally getting laid a lot. Right, yeah. So <laughs> uh, they were like, okay, that's enough. Can't give that queen a break. So I was like, well, pandemic's all my fault. I, um, I became legal age in 1981, AIDS. And then I was like, I'm 57. I feel like I, well, I was 56. And I was like, one regret is that I haven't had enough sex in my life, so I really went to town. And I was having quite a good idea, a good time. And then, kaboom, lockdown. 
could be, you know, harmonic convergence between baby's needs and baby's needs. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The power of both just caused... Somewhere across the Atlantic, these cosmic (laughs) waves just, like, send it. Shut it down. (laughs) (laughs) So where are you? You, You're not in the the city. I'm in my house in um, upstate New York. Oh, in upstate New York. Cool. I was lucky to get locked up in my house what happened i had done my um joe's pub show in march but on the uh 11th which i think was a fr- i mean in february but they closed before the city did too which i will give them really uh they closed like a week before the city went on lockdown and they paid us for our tickets sold wow, wow. It was so gorgeous because i had three sold out, nearly sold out shows with my friend, Anthony Roth Costanzo, the opera singer. And um, we were doing three shows together and because they closed and because they paid us for the tickets sold, we were able to pay our band for those three gigs, even though we hadn't even rehearsed with them yet, but it was so great. They were so um, amazing about that. That was really super generous. That's really good. Yeah. Like, basically, I thought this was going to be an amazing year because I had uh, 33 shows lined up at Joe's Pub for this year, spread out across the year. And, um, like, over half of them have been canceled now. Mm. Oh, no, that's not true. A little less than half of them were canceled. And all my gigs. So because of that, I started that. Well, it wasn't because of that, but... I started doing those streaming shows. Yeah. How are you finding doing that? Do you enjoy it? Uh, yeah. It was really an interesting thing because the first week we were just shut up in the house and David, who's a piano player and who has worked with me in the past, um, but not on a regular basis, but he teaches music at Bard. So he rents a room for me. And uh, I was like, well, everybody's locked in their house and we don't know how long let's just um let's just stream a show to cheer everybody up and he's like okay so we just put a little show together like the first week second or third week in march right like right when we first started and um went live on uh i don't know if we did it live or if we i don't know but anyway we put it up and uh, a lot of people watched and were really, you know, seemed to be happy about it. And then somebody said, you know, girl, you should just ask for tips. I was like, what? They said, you could just put um, a thing up and ask for tips. And, oh, I know why I thought that, because that same week I saw these girls, these, um, uh, my friend Tyler Ashley, who's a performer in New York, who works at New York Lab Arts, and Charlene Incarnate and some queens, they did a rooftop show um, on Facebook Live. I think it was Facebook or YouTube anyway. And they said, oh, they would do tips. And I was like, I should try that, you know? So then I did that and I got, you know, money. And I thought, well, uh, A, people really like it. B, it gives me something to think about other than, all the horrible things in the world. And, um, and I don't have any gigs coming up. So instead of taking April off, which I had planned, I decided, well, I'll just do these shows because who knows if I'll ever make any money again. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it kept me sane. And, uh, then after, cause Nathan and River, his, uh, their partner had been on a cruise ship. They were on a Star Trek fan cruise. Oh, what? During lockdown, like when shutdown happened. When it started, they were out at sea (laughs) in the Star Trek uh, cruise. And I was like, oh my God, I was so worried. Because they had bought a house near me, like 15 miles from here uh, last year. So then they came home and um, Nathan kind of got sick and was sick. And then for like, Three weeks after that, self-quarantined at home. And then 
came over here and joined David and I for the shows, which was really, really nice. And so we melded households and they were the only other people we saw until just a couple weeks ago. So um, it turned into a really cool thing, but I'm stopping this, this Thursday's the last one. Right. Really? For a while. Yeah. Cause I have an art show in Provincetown and, and we've done, this will be 16 weeks of wow. four shows a week. So it's like 64 songs, Whoa. not to mention all like little videos and recordings and interviews and stuff that you end up doing like without thinking about it, except yeah. for, uh, so it's been a lot. I've been working like a dog yeah. in lockdown and crazy. Doing it, did it, because this is a question we've just been thinking about a lot. Like, what, why do we perform? Like, what is it that it gives us that we, that we kind of, that we do aside from it being now our occupation does it give us give us something that we need and did you find that you were missing something and that's why you kind of wanted to do the streaming or, aside from the money aside from literally the money. kept me from losing my mind i mean because the um the collective trauma of everything that's going on in the world and in our communities and especially um you know with uh i know you guys have a crazy political situation going on over there with your president. But ours is like, you know, certifiably like nutso. Mm -hmm. And so when I started performing, it sort of made me feel in a lot of ways the same way that I felt when we started doing Kiki and Her. Because I, I had kind of decided in the 80s that I didn't want to be a performer, even though that's what I studied. And then I found queer performance and and activism combined in San Francisco. And that was how we developed Kiki and Her, which was a way of like channeling the angst of our community and what we were going through and like bringing it through ourselves in performance so that everybody who was in that room could kind of feel like um, validated in their shared experience. And so um, doing this helped me, because it helps me process, first of all. But I think the way that I process it helps the audience process it too. Like at first I was just doing silly things because I was like, oh, we'll have a cocktails and Auntie Glam was all sort of like, you know, being frivolous. Why am I wearing this hat on Tuesday? Like totally silly and everything. But as time went on and people really, you know, started to die, and um, the city was like a morgue with bodies in freezer trucks on the street, you know, then it became like, well, how much of this am I supposed to like do these shows without acknowledging, you know? Mm -hmm. So then I started to like work that in and then the whole Black Lives Matter with the killing of George Floyd and all that. And I was like, okay, now, should I even be performing? Because, you know, we're supposed to like amplify black voices and amplify the protests and what's happening there. And so, you know, I was trying to figure out, it was very, you know, like a lot of soul searching to like think, well, should I, do I even have anything to say? Or is it, you know, so am I being selfish by doing these performances? And, you know, there was a lot I had to go through. And so I, um, you know, it was kind of so, um, like one day I just had to lay in bed all day. Mm. I couldn't move. I was like, what do I do? And if I do do a show, what are the proper songs to sing? And, mm. and, and so, and I didn't, you know, and I was like, I don't, of course I need this money to keep my house afloat. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people that are struggling. And so it was great because Kenny um, contacted me and said, well, let's, let's put out, um, this ways on the moon as an EP and who should we, you know, raise the funds for. And I had already decided that I was going to ask everybody to donate money that week to the, um, I had looked through a lot of organizations cause I do things for organizations mm. a lot. Um, but I was like, who, who really speaks to what I, 
what I feel like I need to raise consciousness around, which was um, Black and Pink, which was this organization that started out as like a queer anarchist organization that was fighting prison, you know, the prison industrial complex. And they really raised money to specifically get sex workers and trans people and queer people out of prison. And so um, I was like, oh, this is great. So then I could raise money and awareness of that organization. And then we had the Kiki and Herb thing. So that kind of didn't make me feel better, but it made me feel like I was actually doing something that I was, you know, could, as you say, the answer to your question, justify performing and doing that. And then, of course, it, it, I can justify it anyway because... I just get all these emails saying, I'm here in my house. I look forward to your drink tutorials every week and I make it a, an event and it cheers people up. Yeah. And so that's enough. I mean, just if you know that you're cheering people up and that you're giving them a reason to like elevate themselves and do something. So it's been an amazing, amazing, um, wonderful, wonderful experience for me. Mm. Yeah. And Nathan as well, I think. Mm. The way you've described it as well is exactly the way I would describe like a live performance with an audience as well, like the reasons for doing it, the reasons, the shared experience. And, yeah. And certainly, because we've certainly like, we haven't really done any performance online, like not live, like we've made a few videos which we've given to other people to kind of put out. And because I've, I've, I've struggled with how to do it, I think, like what format for it to take and, and why. <laughs> why? Like, right. what have I got to say right now? And I think that, the, like you say, the collective trauma at the moment has been, I found it really just inhibiting. Like I haven't been able to go through it in order to then perform with it. Mm. So like... Right. You, got some, you guys plan your things a lot. You mean you write the songs, you, you're... you're, you're the way that you craft your shows is different from the way that I craft mine. Like I just, for the most part, pick existing songs that reference what I'm feeling or thinking or experiencing. And then I contextualize them with what I say in between. Whereas what you guys do is you have to like take it in, process it, really think about it. And then not only think about it, but then transform it into this clever, witty, the song because your songs are you know the um signature of your songs is their wit wit so you you have to actually transform deep complex feelings into a really clever witty interpretation that your audience then recognizes as something that they feel and experience but have never thought of it in those terms that you do it so it's not quite as easy to just like process it and throw it up on a screen in a day like I can do yeah perhaps I think I think yeah I think that's partly we, we, I'm in it we're in it at the moment that mm, we can't yeah. be able to whereas your performance you're describing is so perfect for right now because we and we can share it with you as we're watching you on screen which is which is what I'm missing seeing and doing with theatres being closed and venues being closed, like kind of having those moments of being able to process what's happening to me by seeing stuff on stage and seeing other people. Yeah, it's wretched. It's horrible. And um, somebody said to me, you know, like, there are so many having this being my second pandemic I lived through that, you know, there are a lot of similarities uh, but the the, diff, the main difference is, you know, like contact with people can and sex with people, kissing people, whatever, can kill you. Mm. But while you're dying, you can be around other people, or you could yeah. in yeah. mass pen. You could be around other people, and other people could be at your deathbed. But that's the sort of extreme version of it. But the, while everybody was discovering things and going through stuff, you could get together with people, you could hug each other, you could comfort one another, you could share stories, you could plan actions to sort of like, at least feel like you weren't alone. Mm. Whereas, and it, I mean, it seemed like the whole world against the gay community, whereas now it's the whole world, but the whole world is isolated from itself. And it's so 
great in a way that after all that time, the thing that got people to break their quarantine was uh, a demand for social justice, which had nothing to do with the quarantine, which was this ongoing race struggle. And that was the first thing that people prioritized leaving their house and taking a risk for. Mm. And in that way, it's really amazing. And it actually kind of, I think, was a wonderful, um, this is like the silver lining of that horrible ongoing struggle, but it, it got people out of the room, out of that their rooms and their houses, and they prioritized something that was bigger than themselves and their own struggle for survival, which was, I mean, it is a struggle for survival for the um, oppressed, marginalized people that are being targeted, but and a lot of people who you would think really wouldn't, in the past, haven't exhibited a lot of resolve to help in that situation overcame that so it's kind of that that's the one i think really truly great thing that's happened in the last few months yeah yeah i think there is an awakening from other like myself included in that group yeah that i've always thought of myself as being like yeah yeah i'm kind of woke and i know what's going on but you know it's it's a different ball game now because you're kind of learning how to, um, like, quote unquote, woke people like us, who like are being aware of it and, you know, sort of like acknowledging it in your work or whatever. It's very different from getting to the position where you actually have to be like somebody who's now learning how to articulate struggle mm. and to like be an ally in a way. And, and like your interpersonal relationships and your, um, your economic choices for yourself and with other people who consider themselves to be woke, but you just know they're not. <laughs> you don't want to alienate those people because you want to try and sort of like, you know, like trying to explain. I mean, I kind of really um, over the years have been blessed that African-American people have helped me to understand what white privilege is and in a sort of gradual way by just being friends with them or whatever. But then, you know, if you try to explain white privilege to another person that's white, that hasn't had that, I mean, there's a real reaction that comes from that. And it's a reaction that, you know, is a, probably an ordinary natural reaction to feeling like you're being attacked and your whole like value system is being undermined, which then you have to like also be willing to like wait until after they finally, you know, calm down and realize that, Oh, okay. Maybe you were right. And then you have to kind of forgive them for lashing out at you for explaining. I mean, it's a real, it takes patience. It's like, with yourself and with the people that you love that you're because everybody has to figure it out. Yeah. If we're going to move on. Yeah. It's ongoing. It's like, you know, you peel back the layers of privilege and, and, and also you have to like be willing to recognize that you might want it or need to give up some of your privilege, which is, that's not easy to get people to do give up things voluntarily, but also, if you don't want to give up your privilege, then you have to figure out ways of advocating that other people are afforded those privileges. You know, like my philosophy isn't that everybody needs to give up their privilege, but everybody needs to be struggling and fighting to make sure that they recognize those privileges and do everything they can to see that other people are afforded those same privileges, which is, then you have to do work. Yeah. I think as well, it feels like there's a sort of sense a little bit that like in the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement happening simultaneously with the pandemic is kind of, it's almost like the pandemic created a perfect environment for that in the fact that it flipped the world upside down. Everybody was suddenly confronted with the potential for new possibilities and the fact that 
things that we took for granted are not are not definite nothing is nothing is set in stone and everything can be changed so i think they people kind of feel like felt like there was this resonance that was happening through that conversation because everyone has is kind of looking at a future which mm. feels quite different um yeah so so for a lot of white people to be confronted with this sort of sense of themselves and the work that they have to do it i think maybe partly it is this sense of well everything is different yeah. and i have the time and I, and the world looks different enough for me to make that and change also, within myself and also like i think for in the uk like certainly like i would say that most people have felt like the government have just been like utterly useless and like just not not been there so like i think for a lot of like white British people or just white people in Britain who've like always been afforded certain the certain privileges that come with that identity have also had a sort of faith in the establishments mm. that have always looked right. like yeah. right. and suddenly those right. establishments have abandoned them really and they've gone oh actually this is what it's like to be abandoned by the establishment not saying that the it's completely equatable but like it's definitely given a key to I think to like you say people that didn't get it before or couldn't get it even and again I say myself included in that like you know there's like this the establishment isn't actually that established and they don't know what the hell they're doing and so there are other ways to question it and it seems too that the parallel in your country and my country is that the establishment you know the 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 with brexit and with trump and all of that uh all of a sudden a lot of entitled white people like you and i who you know were pro eu or who were sort of like liberal or even like neoliberal or whatever we all of a sudden had our government taken away and replaced by extreme examples of white supremacist governments. Mm. Like Trump makes no, um, he doesn't hide the fact that he's aligned himself with the strain of American politics that goes back to the pre-Civil War that's been struggling to like return this like, make America great again. It's like to make America this like uh, white supremacist, white male, prominent, uh, dominant, like his word, let's go out and dominate them. And they don't, when the, he says, let's go out on the street and dominate them, he's talking about us now. He's mm -hmm. not talking uh, just, he's talking about the African-American people or the black people or the immigrants and all of the people who support them, yeah. which is yeah. us. So, yes, we don't have the history of oppression that they have, but we are feeling the marginalization that comes from that more keenly and acutely than ever, I think. And also, I've been thinking a lot about, like, in terms of performance, like a lot of criticism on social media about the performativity of like allyship as well like to be s supportive of and an ally um mm -hmm. movements but without it being but, but, but maintaining a truth to that like without it being like just a performance but also making it public that you know you are publicly acknowledging your allyship or your support of something and that's like, and, and at being a performer, you know, oneself, like I, I worry sometimes that we, I can like slip into like, oh, well, I know this, if I do this, I get this reaction because that's, right. I'm used to that in my professional life. <laughs> like, oh God, what is reality? What is truth? Like now everything's gone like, whoa. I don't know if you Yeah, well, that's why, you know, I said I had to lay in bed and mm. like I couldn't move because... I don't, A, I don't want to be that person that's, you know, um, just, uh, what's that word that they use? Um, something signaling, virtue signaling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't want to be a virtue signaler. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't, I, with a lot of soul searching, I would say that, yes, I am a virtue signaler because that also could be considered, you know, educating. Mm. If you have a platform, you're educating people. And, you know, you could just do that. And uh, I always have been, you know, from the very beginning, really aware of uh, 
the fact that I would go out to, uh, to marches occasionally. I didn't really go out and get arrested in the 80s with um, ACT UP. I went to a lot of um, demonstrations, but I allied myself more with Queer Nation because ACT UP was a struggle that I had a lot of friends that supported, but I was looking more, I was, I was more um, interested in Queer Nation because as an artist, as an artist, I felt like I could add something more than just my body to that. I, I, I felt like I could, you know, help plan events and I could make a contribution. And that was about queer visibility and getting queerness past the censors onto television, into like the mainstream to appeal to people like my family and, and you know, just like average folks around the world to like <clears throat> be part of that. So I, when they had the, uh, the uh, International Conference on AIDS in San Francisco, I as an entertainer was the MC of the performance that all the people came to after they'd been in, you know, workshops all day. And I knew what, what they'd been talking about so I could perform intelligently to that audience. Mm. But it was um, about saying to myself, okay, I don't want to just be somebody who's like making a career based on, you know, this like horrible crisis. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I'm the AIDS girl. I go entertain AIDS people. No, not like I didn't want to do that. But it was it was I was within the community. I was performing for the community. And that's what I, you know, that's how I've always kind of like done done it. But I also then you do have to like challenge yourself to get out and go to marches and go to protests and really show up and put your body mm. with the other bodies. And um and then, you know, I think it's it's a hard balance and i got arrested in october in front of the supreme court because uh the trump administration was for the ru ruling that came down this week we did the protest and the day that the supreme court heard the case and then the ruling came out so up until monday we, i was fairly certain we were just going to have all of our rights taken away and i was like da -da -da -da. i'm still sort of planning like what do i do when i need to escape from this country where am i going to go um, but I had to go there, you know, and I was scared because I kind of made up my mind I was going to get arrested. And I had had friends who had been arrested in DC before sort of explain it to me and walk me through it. But like at a certain point, I saw a friend get a wristband when they were getting taken into the paddy wagon and then, and she was a woman and she had on one color. And then I saw someone else get a wristband and it was a guy and it was a different color. And I was like, Oh my God, they're separating people by gender. And I do not want to be like put in jail with these men. And I got really, really scared. And I had, I had known it was going to be a risk. And the person who went, uh, another person who went down with us who was trans decided they did not want to have that risk. So they were our sort of like outside person who was just going to be kind of looking after us if anything happened. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. As it turns out, they were just separating groups to be processed separately. Right. So we didn't have to go, but for those few minutes, it was terrifying. And that's why I'm not somebody who just goes and gets arrested all the time because mm -hmm. to me as a trans person that's terrifying and then i read stories about people who get arrested and are in jail for like three nights and being harassed and i just don't want, i don't want to do that no no <laughs> but people do and and i my hat's off to them but that's where i kind of that's my line yeah, and I think it's interesting. Like you were talking about early when you start when you started performance, how activism was really your like key into wanting to perform again. Like the relationship between the two, like they're kind of they're kind of in is inseparable, irreparable, irreparable, inseparable. That's not a word, by the <laughs> the irreceptibility of... <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. pure sexual. You can't throw it out. <laughs> <laughs> like before, performance and activism, they don't. They're blurred. They're all one for you. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's an interesting thing. At the, I think at the moment as well about thinking about the fact that so many of us can't really perform, and so activism is, and this is a period of of activism being so important. It's like you, we as performers, the focus really now is on actually turning up and doing the activist work or going to the rallies, and it's not like I, I, I've thought a lot about. You know, we use irony a lot in our work, and we'll kind of we'll take aim at an issue by making a joke of it and making an ironic statement about it. And everyone in the room laughs and we all go, yes, you're right, Borsha and Maurice, that is very silly. But it's not, doesn't do anything, but it makes us feel good. And I think in some ways, I think I've maybe allowed that to feel like that's my activism. Mm. Like I, I confront issues by making snarky comments about them in song. But when I can't do that I feel anymore. Like that is. I yeah. mean, that's what I like seeing you guys because it's you like presented as this like frothy thing, but you're addressing real subjects, serious subjects. And it gives people an opportunity to like have a way into like, I mean, I think it's, it's activism. Don't you? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I think it's, I don't know. It's something I've been grappling with now that I can't, now that we're not doing that so much. It feels like, well, I'm not going to do that. So I do need to be going to the marches and talking and mm. and speaking with people online and, and using that side of things. So I guess they do intersect. And I think that probably when we start writing again, they will intersect again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it is an interesting thing, I think, that link between performance and activism. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and taking that, like, our vehicle away that we normally use has been... Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's made me go very, like, in, in, insular, not, but not in a negative way, in a, like, I've been making sure, like, I've been reading much more, like, I've actively gone and bought books by you know black authors that I had always gone oh I'd love to read that oh I should read that and that now I'm reading it and like I've been like having conversations with my black friends on a personal level about things so like I kind of like done the opposite of performance in a way (laughs) I've just got like that's the great thing that's the worst thing about the the worst thing about being a, a working performer like we are where you're just always working is that you don't get the opportunity to dive in and have a break and re- that's which is what I had intended to do in April anyway because mm. I had just working for so long I was like I don't even know what I have to say or what I want to say or yeah. I just need I'm weary you know so that is the pitfall of being a successful artist you just sort of get your thing going and you just do it do it do it and you're good at it and you can keep kind of growing it and building it but you don't actually get that much of a chance to sit and read and really think about stuff. Yeah. To be compelled to go back to work and integrate all of that, which is a gift. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it is actually the time to do that. I guess that's, yeah, we've kind of, that's what we've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> when you yeah. made Kiki and Herb with Kenny kind of during the trauma of, of, of the of the AIDS crisis kind of unfolding around you, was that, would you say that was a deliberate decision then, or was it more of an emotional kind of, you felt more emotionally compelled to kind of make people laugh at a time when it, laughter didn't necessarily feel like, I guess, the initial reaction that everybody was having around you. Well, we were, I think, um, our friends all had such dark, dark humor, you know, right. and this sort of like gallows humor mm. was, was real because we were in the gallows, you know? Yeah. So like we, um, we, I, I started doing Kiki before I, um, before Kenny and I started doing Kiki and her, I did it, some performances where I was like, I was just feeling that as a sort of like, trans person that I was like who I was was a lot more um soft and I felt like these like misogynist gay guys were treating me like uh they expect they would be sort of like bitchy toward me in a way that expected me to be bitchy back like like drag that sort of stereotypical drag queen humor that 
I just wanted to be pretty and sing pretty songs and like be glamorous. And um, so then I was like, okay, well, one day I just had had it. So I created this character who was like, I was, I was like, I'm going to be this like scary bitchy queen that these people want. And then I like went in and basically, you know, topped them with my, <laughs> my personality and rage. But then when I realized that that rage of that personality uh, was, uh, I could really have conviction with it. Mm. And my friend's mother who inspired that character was a real leftist political person who scared me, but she scared me because I was like this privileged white bougie little boy from a small town in Maryland. And she was this former showgirl that like had experienced all kinds of bullshit, you know? And she's like, that's not the way it is kid. And I was like, uh -huh. and so I sort of carried her energy of, you know, being, she was in her fifties and she went back to school for social work. And then she died of cancer shortly thereafter. But I was like, this is a righteous woman. And so she kind of gave me the in to integrate all that was going on politically and socially around me in that way as that character. So, and then Kenny also was doing street act, theatrical street actions. And, and we were doing the working together before Kiki and Herb started, but I was doing my glamour stuff and we were doing like lounge versions of pop songs in this like much uh, softer way than we ended up doing as Kiki and Herb. So his political activism, my political activism, that all came together. And that's that, that chemistry and we both had that same perspective. So that was a long answer to your question. I'm sorry. And it's coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah so that's how it started it was necessary our community needed it yeah yeah, yeah. well but rather than looking back what about looking forward like do you think do you think performance and like the way nature of performance will change in in some way after i, I i'll be curious to see i don't know because i i don't think we're going to really know until we find out for instance you know if um if Trump is reelected, then he, he will be reelected with absolutely unchecked power mm. because uh, he's gotten away with so much. And, um, you know, yesterday he fired the district attorney of New York or Friday or over the weekend, he fired the district attorney of New York, who's like the person who's investigating Giuliani and all of these people. So, wow. be, in, so he's fighting anybody who who's in the justice department. He's firing anybody who's checking into his malfeasance. So, you know, if he gets, and they've been appointing all these judges, they didn't, they didn't approve any judges during um, Obama. Mm -hmm. And they've been just like rubber stamping conservative lifetime judicial appointments to really young, ultra-conservative people. So if he gets in, then I, won't, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, like, what's going to happen to the press, what's going to happen to freedom of speech, and where, we're gonna, where our platforms will be and how dangerous it will be. Um, that, that's like a extreme example of what might might possibly happen but it could possibly happen mm -hmm. so and then you know how do we start doing live performance again because I, I i on my own little world okay so if i go to joe's pub to perform and they say okay we're gonna we'll only be able to allow 50% of the people into the audience that we would have before. So then do I like double my prices? Yeah. Also, do I just try not to sing so loud so that when I sing, you know, a song, my spit doesn't go out 25 feet <laughs> and people, do I try not to make them laugh so hard so they don't go father? <laughs> <into my face? laughs> so yeah. am I going to like, 
take these two months off and realize, okay, I'm not going to be on stage again for a while. I need to like get proper sound equipment into my living room and like mm-hmm. turn my house into a real studio and like have a subscription series so that I know how much money I'm going to make each month based on how many people have subscribed to my thing. And then how many people are actually going to have money because yeah. Yeah. 41 million Americans are unemployed right now. 41 million. Wow. But here's the other thing. I do think I really truly do believe that we are going to, we as artists are, are going to figure out how to make it work. It's mm-hmm. going to be different. It's, you know, like, 5,000 people in a, crammed into a Broadway theater is not going to be happening anytime soon, I don't think, unless they come up with, but unless they come up with some sort of cure. But also, even if you're like, after what we've been through and after the social distancing, how many people are going to actually, it's going to take a while for people yeah. to even kind of feel comfortable yeah. in a crowd like that, I yeah. think. Maybe people just go back right away. Maybe it won't be that. It's interesting, isn't it? like, you know, as performers, we spend a lot of time looking at people gathered together in small groups and, and you kind of can see how spaces well, change. I, I look at them gathered in large groups. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we look at people like so 10, 20 people at a go. <laughs> no, our fold, really and our fold out shows. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's always interesting when you see like how people, if, if you know, if, if we play a cabaret space and people are seated at tables, they're immediately more relaxed. They'll laugh more. We don't have to work as hard to get them relaxed at the start of a show. If you see people crammed into banks of seats that are raked, they're harder work. Like they tend to be a bit more reserved to begin with and you have to get them into it. So we spend so much time looking at the way people behave together and I can't imagine how much work it will have to be as performers who speak to audiences to really get them to relax for a long time just coming to any space post this pandemic because mm. it feels like mm. all the things they're talking about like you know these um, theatres where they've taken out massive banks of seats and separated people around like it would be toxic to perform any kind of comedy material to that crowd like you're better off sticking to at yeah. the internet and doing it all through digital i think for that period well, i don't know because people are desperate to laugh and I also performing like this i mean i i i get that you know i make myself laugh but i don't hear any laughter and i don't see anybody and you know i just belt out a song and then i'm like when people are usually clapping and you're going <laughs> catching your breath for a second and then you can say thank you now you're like Oh, okay, that's done. Now, uh, it's so weird. And yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a different energy level. Yeah, so, we haven't, I guess we haven't really done that that much. Because I guess I haven't been, yeah, I haven't, I wondered how that feeling, like, how does it feel at the end of the song? Like, the end of the song moment is like, that's <laughs> where you're like, ah, yeah. it's nothing. <laughs> no, <laughs> And it's not even like when you make a video or you do something and you have a crew and a director and they're like, great, babe, great. Yeah. It's just like the two of you and you're like, let's have another sip of this cocktail and uh, I'll say some other shit, whatever. Yeah. You know, really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Someone needs to invent like a, a Facebook live sound, which is just the sound of applause whenever we've done a video, like yeah. just saying just and then this recording comes in. What do you have? Is there any kind of talk of of any live stuff coming up for you in the future of the Well, I have, um, there's a possibility, I'm sort of maybe gonna take July and August off from performing um, because I have that art show, but there is a possibility that I may do a, like a show at a drive-in theater this summer. Oh, wow. Um, because you can, I, I, if I had a drive-in theater, I would be rich right now because I would um, I'd program the shit out of it. I would invite churches to like have their preacher preach in front of the screen and have their congregations full up. And then I'd like have gay bingo brunch in the Sunday afternoon and have like catering for people to eat in their cars and have some 
queen like projected up onto the screen and then I would have evening concerts and followed by movies. I would just have that thing programmed and have, you know, the, the kitchen, because most of those places did have kitchens wow. and just like serve food to all the people in their um, cars. That's what I would do. Um, but I don't have to drive in theater, but I'm, I've been talking to some people and I might be performing at one. Awesome. But then I, I, if, if Joe's pub figures it out, I'm still uh, scheduled to perform there in September if they start doing that. And then my other gigs are in, uh, in December. And Anthony Roth Costanzo and I are gonna go into the studio and record an album together in the fall. Oh, great. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. So, and then, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I feel like just like my my blinkers are only on to the end of the year to like December. Come January 2021, who knows <laughs> what we're doing? Yeah, these are going to be like a second wave, and we're all going to be locked down again. Or yeah. and and if that's the case, then you know the whole and it's the whole world. Yeah. Mm. The whole system, like the whole capitalist system, is just going to be utterly and completely irrelevant and how are we going to like maintain our you know how do we go on because we're not going to be making money it's either got to clear up or we got to make some real we're going to have to make some real changes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i feel like the kind of the queers are good at that i think queers quite adaptable quite radical change and and performers too and performers, yeah. We'll yeah. come out with a solution to all the world's problems by by uh, March or yeah. Feb next year. Yeah, for sure. If not before. If, if not, not before. Yeah, it could be a Christmas gift to the world. <laughs> yeah. We'll write a funny song about it at the very least. Like, <laughs> yeah. You have now till Christmas to write one funny one. song. One funny song. We're going to try <laughs> This is the, the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so nice talking to you. Yeah, thank you. For, thank, you. thank you for asking me to do this. It's such a pleasure. Hopefully see you in the flesh. Yes. Yes. IRL soon. Bye. Well, that was Justin Vivian Bond. What an icon. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, next episode, we will be speaking to the utterly brilliant cabaret performer and theatre maker Ursula Martinez, who has been on lockdown in Spain. One minute, you know, I'm a hustling artist in London town, thinking I'm the cat's whiskers. And the next minute, I'm cooking breakfast, lunch and supper for my 84-year-old mum with dementia in the south of Spain. That's Ursula Martinez coming up next week. Let us know if you're listening. Uh, we're at Borg, Mar- at Borg Maurice on Twitter. That's B-O-U-R-G Maurice. Yeah. It's a weird one, isn't it? It is. At Maybe Bors- we'll like put it in like some information somewhere on this podcast. write it down yeah uh, Twitter and Instagram find us tell us if you're listening yeah you don't bother with Facebook because no one cares about that anymore. nah um, thank you also thank we should you. thank to our sponsors oh yes ourselves thank you to ourselves <laughs> um, and thank you to Thomas Trefanovas um, whose uh, studio we've been squatting in um, for free for free thank thanks you. for that Curtain Twitchers with Curtain Twitchers <laughs> <laughs>